You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Art Markman, who is Professor of Psychology and Marketing at UT Austin, but he's also the author of numerous books, including uh, Smart Thinking, Habits of Leadership, uh, Brain Briefs, Smart Change, and I think we'll talk a lot about that, and your recent book, Bring Your Brain to Work. You also have a podcast, Two Guys on Your Head, and you've made frequent appearances on various TV shows. You've written extensively for a more popular audience. And so, you know, when I look at all your body of work, it kind of seems to me like cognitive science is kind of like the new philosophy, right? Either that or, or Aristotle was the original cognitive scientist, right? Because if the unexamined life is not worth living and if we're all trying to figure out, right, know thyself, it seems like cognitive scientists have, have stepped into this role. Now, maybe, you know, maybe there was a brief moment when the, the Freudian folks kind of thought they would own that role, but it seems like now the cognitive scientists are the ones that we look to to figure out kind of what the heck's going on and then also to give us the tools that we need to live the life we want to live, achieve the goals we want to achieve and, and so forth. Is that kind of how you see your role in part? Because uh, you're doing, I mean, you're not just simply academically studying things, but you're actually offering up a lot of tools and advice and wisdom to people. I think that's actually a fair assessment. One way to think about this is I've often said over the years that we had Aristotle, and you can draw a line from Aristotle to William James as basically a line of smart people who had no data who speculated on the way minds worked. And then, you know, William James was right at that leading era when people started to collect some data about the way that minds work. And then cognitive science really stepped into that. I mean, there was cognitive psychology, there was some linguistics. And then at some point we really began to combine all these fields and neuroscience and some computer science to think computationally about how minds work and anthropology, because culture has this huge influence on the way that we are programmed to think by the people around us over the years and sociology, because frankly, there's a lot of group dynamics that play a role. And so we've advanced a lot in understanding the way that thinking happens and the way that we engage with each other. And I, I do feel like the more we understand about the way minds work, the more that we can begin to make different decisions about how we choose to do things. And because for bizarre historical reasons, a lot of psychology never really made it into the standard curriculum most people don't have a deep understanding of the way their own minds work, despite the fact that most of us are going to be asked to think for a living after we get out of school. And so I feel like having a certain number of people in the field who are willing to step forward and say, hey, here are some things that we've observed that you might want to know, and that by knowing them, you could make different and informed decisions about how you do what you do. I think that's important. And, and so, you know, I, st about, I'd say about 15, 20 years into my career, I began to ask the question, what is the impact I ought to make over the course of my career? And, you know, when you reach the middle of your career, you could say, well, if I just, just took my Vita, you know, all those papers and then I, if I just double that, is that it? Is that the, is that the only contribution? I thought, well, I, I think it'd be nice to engage a little bit more and, and to bring a little bit more of the science outward and just see how that 
could be used to give people a little bit more insight into how they engage with each other. You know, I was talking to somebody uh, a while back about the illusion of explanatory depth, and we're talking about things like refrigerators and, and, and toilets and cars and so forth. But I feel like we succumb to that when we're trying to understand ourselves, right? You know, there's this conventional view that, oh, let's figure out what we want out of life and then let's just go achieve it. <laughs> and, and it's like, well, no you know, it's, 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 and then we discover maybe it's, it's not that simple. And so how important is it that we really, that we understand the mechanisms, right? I mean, obviously we don't have to be PhDs in, in cognitive science, but how important is it for an ordinary person to really understand what they're up against when they're trying to, you know, accomplish goals and so forth? Yeah, I think there's a certain amount of it that, that's really important. And, and in particular, a lot of us rely on our own introspection. You know, we, we think about, well, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? And unfortunately, introspection doesn't get you nearly as far as you'd like to think, in part because of the way the brain is structured. And so if you look at the motivational mechanisms in the brain, a lot of them involve circuits that run through brain structures that are phylogenetically really old. Mm -hmm. So if, and, and you could tell that because if you were to dissect the brain of a, of a rat or a sheep or any other kind of animal, you'll find similar brain structures, the, the you know, the, the, the basal ganglia in particular, despite the fact that we, that evolutionarily we split off from those species a long time ago. But if you think about it, most animals, for example, most mammals have some pretty similar goals that they need to achieve in order to stay alive. So having some mechanisms that allow animals to achieve those goals is it's really useful. And that's why those structures evolved pretty early on. And then, and then in a literal sense, a lot of the nifty cognitive apparatus that we have got built on top of that other motivational apparatus. But it is not interconnected with it in a way that allows us to have insight, to really look into those mechanisms. And so when we do that introspection, we're analyzing our own thoughts, but we're not really getting direct access to those motivational mechanisms. And consequently, we're sort of looking at our own motivations slightly from the outside, because the way the motivational system communicates with the rest of the brain is actually through feelings that it generates. Basically, when things are going motivationally well for you, you feel good. When they're going motivationally poorly, you feel bad. And the more engaged you are, the stronger that feeling. And then you turn that feeling into an emotion through a process that psychologists have called appraisal, where you basically evaluate, well, what's going on right now? And then you say, well, that's the emotion that I'm experiencing. But because of that, you don't really know what it is that's holding you back. And the more you understand about the way the motivational system works, the more that you can stop fighting against yourself if you're trying to achieve a different goal or, or change your behavior in some way. But one would think that that mechanism, the way you described it, would be in alignment with goal achievement, right? So, you know, as we get closer to the goal, we, we feel good. And as we get further away from the goal, we, we feel bad. And so this would be like, you know, reinforcement learning, right? This should be yeah. our ally, right? But, but I think, you know, it's, and, it's sometimes it well, isn't. It mostly right? so, it is. Yeah. But, but I think, that, that, right, I think, I think the thing to remember is most of us are pretty good at achieving most of our goals most of the time. It's, it's not like we're not utter failures. You know, we make it through life reasonably well. It's just, you know, one of the things I do is, is when people think about changing behavior, one of the first things you have to do is to ask yourself, where are my sources of failure? And in particular, where are the 
the sources of failure that are a signal that something has to change because there are really three kinds of failures and only one of them is bad. So sometimes you fail because you incorrectly navigate the effort accuracy trade-off. So sometimes, you know, because look, we, we don't have enough time to do everything we, we, we want to do. And so part of what we do, I hate people who say, I always give 110%. Most things in your life don't require 110%, right? The trick is give 10% when 10% is required, 50% when 50% is required, and 110% when, when you need to give your all. And so we, we learn to do that. You know, successful adults learn this only required a little bit of my time. So I'm going to, I'm going to do a, a poor job on that, but it's good enough. And, and here this required more effort, but the only way to really learn where the boundary is, is sometimes to put in too little effort. And then somebody gives you feedback that wasn't good enough. And then you go, okay, next time I do this, I'm going to put in more effort. And that's great. That's benign. That's, that's actually failing that way. Every once in a while is that's good. So that way, that's the kind of, that's the kind of failure that helps you to calibrate, right? Right. Exactly. And, exactly. And, so, and, you know, someone says that like, if you, if you've never missed a plane, then that means you're, you're, you know, you're probably showing up, showing up too early on average, right? That's right. That's right. Exactly right. And then the, the second kind of failure is what I call life or what the kids these days call adulting, which is, is basically making the standard set of trade-offs all of us have to make in order to deal with all of the limited resources we have. There isn't enough time and money and energy to do everything you want to do all the time. So you pick and choose. And as long as you fail unsystematically, you're just being an adult, you know, because you're, you're picking and choosing what's the right thing to do here. And over time, you manage to achieve the things you want to achieve. So where are the problems? The problems are where you, when you get to systematic failures, where there's something that, that you acknowledge, this is important to me. And over a six month or year long period, I have simply not succeeded at making this happen because that's the place where if you continue acting the way you act, you are going to continue not to succeed. So you, you find those sources of systematic failure. And that's the place where you now need some insight into what your motivational mechanisms are, because that's the place where all of the stuff you've been doing, including all that reinforcement learning that drove very low level choices about what to do when, that's led you astray in the sense that I have this goal and if I keep doing it, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna achieve some, some significant long-term outcome. And so is the failure to achieve these goals, the goals you intend, the goals you have in your mind, is it because there are other goals that your, your body, your brain are, are trying to achieve that are happening in the background that, that you're not aware of? And so when you're kind of on autopilot, you're, you're letting those goals dominate the ones that you would like to impose on. Is that a way to think about it? You know, when you're thinking about things like self-control issues and so forth or hyperbolic discounting, I mean, is this, is it really about, I've got these conscious goals and then there are these more kind of unconscious goals, including the goal that I, I like you start off the, the book, a smart change talking about, which is really about, I guess, cognitive efficiency. And, and this is kind of the Herb Simon concept, you know, whether bounded rationality or just the idea that you really don't want to, your brain doesn't want to expend a whole lot of effort. And maybe, you know, maybe your brain sort of, I don't know, do you think that your default mechanism underestimates the amount of mental resources that you have? I mean, is this a mechanism that, that evolved perhaps when you, know, you didn't have all this, these carbohydrates that could fuel your, you know, your, your thinking process? Why is it that your default mechanism kind of is, is so lazy when, when it comes to cognition? 
I think, you know, it's, there are a variety of things. And some of it is, I think, what you're describing, which is, which is it is both effortful and sometimes a little dangerous to do things in a new way. If I do things the way I've always done them, then, then I can safely predict what the outcome is going to be. And I think in our evolutionary history, doing stuff that caused you to do something very new could actually be legitimately dangerous. Now we've managed to make the world relatively safe except for pandemics, I guess, but still, you know, there's, there's a, there's a sense of that unpredictability is a little bit of a danger sign for us. We, we get a little bit anxious. I always tell people that foreign travel is mostly fun in retrospect while you're in the foreign country. You're, you're like, I don't, I don't know how to use the money. I'm not sure where I'm going to find a place to get dinner. I don't know how to say, excuse me to the people on the street. And then afterwards you're like, that trip was great because you know how it came out. So I think there's a little bit of it that just has to do with wanting to be in predictable situations. But I do think that another piece of it is we don't have a lot of downtime. We're always doing something, but a lot of times we engage in behaviors because the environment calls them out to us in ways that then drive our behavior that allow us to do things that make perfect sense in the short run, but the accumulated action of all of those short-term activities doesn't add up to anything more significant. So, you know, a lot of people, for example, could get to the end of the year and say, I answered 31,474 emails, but I don't think anyone would say my contribution at work this year was that I answered over 30,000 emails. They would want that to add up to something. But the problem is email just keeps coming in. I mean, we've been talking for what, 15 minutes. I'm sure that I've got another 25 emails right now. And if, if I was just sitting there, I could, I could keep answering those, but would that actually allow me to do anything that I would look back on fondly? And so part of the problem too, is some of the factors that drive the specific things we do moment by moment may not be the things that add up to a significant contribution that you'd like to say you made when you look back over a six month or one year period. Well, I think what, one of the things that I found most compelling is that you describe our lives as sort of the accumulation of habits, right? And, and look, I mean, I think Aristotle said the same thing, right? That we're, you know, we're creatures of habit. So I'm in good company. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of laying down these routines and, and subroutines and, you know, what works, works. And, and, and the, the, presumably the reason is to free up cognition. I mean, Obama famously said, you know, I have two suits so that I can focus my brain energy on like world peace and so forth. And if, if I have to spend time figuring out, oh, do I want to wear the plaid suit or the checkered suit, right? That's energy I could be using for, for, for something else. And, and then he and, wore you know, that tan suit and look what happened. So, yeah, right. Or, you know, when you're driving, right. The reason why people used to think before the pandemic that commute time was, you know, they actually liked it. I don't know. never liked it, but they liked it is because you know, the driving was sort of semi on an autopilot and they could, you know, think about other stuff. And if you had to spend all of your time, you know, worrying about the car in front of you and, oh my God, it's a yellow line. What's a yellow line all about? Then you wouldn't presumably get any mental work done while driving. And so if we're kind of just accumulating habits throughout life, I guess there's a couple of questions. One is, does that make behavioral change more difficult kind of later in life than earlier in life because you, you have the like sclerosis of, of the decision-making arteries. And then I guess the other question is if this is like a explore versus exploit trade-off, you know, what's the optimal frequency with which we, we need to kind of revisit these routines? I mean, do you need to have like a, I don't know, you know, how your computer does that thing every now and then where it's 
looking through the files and, and, you know, you can't actually do anything on your computer. I mean, do we need to like have a periodic brainwash or scan of, of the, of the, of the habit stack to, to figure out like which ones of these are still useful and which ones need to be revised or discarded? So there's a whole bunch of questions packed in there. And so, and so actually that notion of finding the systematic failures, to me, that's the place where you discover, I must have some habits that are getting in the way. And so really what happens when you find that systematic failure, you say, Hey, here's this thing I'd love to do, and I'm not getting it done. What that means is you've got to now figure out, well, why am I not getting it done? And usually what you discover is because I'm doing something else. And you have to ask yourself, why am I doing that? And often you then have to become an observer of your own habits. So if you think about what a habit is, habits are memories that are relate a situation you're into an action you're going to perform. And because memory retrieval happens automatically, you don't have to think about retrieving a memory. It just happens. You're not really aware of the fact that some combination of the external environment and your internal environment triggered this recall of a behavior. You're not even thinking about what it is that you've done. And consequently, you may not even know what is it that I'm doing when I should be doing the actions that would allow me to achieve this other goal. So one of the things you have to do is become a skilled observer of your own behavior. I actually recommend in Smart Change that you keep a habit diary, that you spend just a couple of weeks watching yourself and saying, what am I doing and when am I doing it and how do I feel and can I characterize the environment without really trying to overtly change your behavior, just to figure out what is the land, what is the behavioral landscape that I'm in that is making it so hard for me to achieve the goal that I want to achieve. But, you know, you raised an interesting question is, so does this mean that as you get older, you just, you know, it becomes harder to change your behavior? And the answer, like the answer to every good question in, in cognitive science is it depends. Hey, that's true in business school too. Exactly right. And what it depends on in this case is often things like the environment that you're in. Mm -hmm. So if your environment stays the same, it's really hard to change your behavior because you have a set of routines that are well adapted to that environment. But if you change up the environment, it can often be really easy to change behaviors. I tell people you want to, you know, if you're, if you're trying to change your eating behavior, you don't have to move to a new house, but you could move all the dishes and, and cutlery around your kitchen. So that now none of your specific low-level routines work anymore. And now you have six weeks while you're building some new habits around how to find stuff in the kitchen to also intervene on your eating behavior. And, and I think similarly, you can do that with all kinds of situations. I mean, if you look at work, for example, you know, people went from often working in an office and having a particular routine to suddenly overnight in the middle of March of 2020 to work from home, which most people weren't really mindful of that opportunity because they were just worried about the, the pandemic. And initially, I think people thought, well, this is just going to last for a month or two. And so, and so we didn't necessarily use that as an opportunity to say, how do I want to think differently about my work behavior? But as we begin to transition back to hybrid work environments and other things, this is a chance to think about how do I want to structure both my home and my work environments to be better able to achieve some set of goals. And then because you asked several questions at once, I'm going to, I want to, I want to just mention one other thing, which is you, you talked about 
trying to navigate and explore versus exploit trade-off, you know, and that's an issue that we've actually, I mean, my, I'm on the research side of my life, have looked a little bit at, at exploration and exploitation. And just, just to be clear to everybody, in case you came to this and aren't, you know, deeply versed in this, at any given moment, you have some set of things that you've done before that are actions you've taken and you know what the outcome is going to be. And if you take that action again, you are exploiting the known aspects of your environment. And if you try something new that, that, that may not have been the best thing to do in the past, you are, you are exploring that environment because who knows that might be a better action than the thing that you did before. And what's interesting is the data we've collected in, in my lab suggests that the more dynamic the environment is, the more that people explore because they correctly recognize that when things are constantly changing, you can't rely on habits very much because there might be something better to do out there. The way we structure our lives though, is actually pretty stable. We hang out with the same kinds of people. Our house is structured in the same way. We, we keep, even though people change careers, they don't change them daily. And so, you know, you get used to stuff that's happening in your job and that stability breeds a lot of reliance on exploitation. And so we often do under explore possibilities. And I think that if you look at successful people, you know, they often have characteristics that we think of as, as things like curiosity and curiosity in some ways is just, is just exploratory behavior. And, and I think that, that people who are willing to explore a little bit often find new interesting things that they could do that are enriching. So, I mean, this, this means maybe if you're trying to get people to explore more, just kind of disrupt their environment somehow. So for instance, you mentioned how the psychology department at UT, they moved into a new building and of course everybody was kind of freaking out, but maybe that made people capable of doing a closer examination of the routines that they took for granted. Maybe something good came out of it. We, in, in office environments, a lot of times they'll reshuffle the location of the workers in different offices and, you know, travel and moving to different venues. I, I have oftentimes would orchestrate these Silicon Valley tours, you know, and, and I think the, the major benefit of this, I mean, a lot of it's kind of gimmickry and tourism uh, when it's done poorly, but a lot of it's about just pulling people out of their, their routines and their environments and, and just that removal, uh, that offsite process forces them to kind of become aware of the things that, that are routinized. So, you know, I think in, in accounting, we t in business, we talk about financial hygiene, where if you don't know how you're currently spending your money, then you can't really evaluate whether you're spending it on the right stuff. I always recommend that people do a time audit. And I, it's a remarkable to me how few people in their ordinary lives do financial audits, but even smaller number of them do time audits. And, you know, did you actually choose to spend that hour and a half, you know, looking at cat videos <laughs> or did it just kind of creep up on you? And does it creep up on you every single day of your life? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, I was the founding director of a program called the human dimensions of organizations here at the university of Texas. And we, the HDO is basically it's for people in business and, and other organizations to focus on, on human centered problems. So if you, if you wake up one day and you think the biggest problem I'm facing isn't money, it's people, then this is the kind of program that you want to focus on. And in the class that I teach in that program, which is called organizational inertia, so it's focused on all the things that keep us doing the same thing over you and over You have a whole again. class on that. I love yeah. it. One of the things we do is, is to have people actually analyze some of their own habits 
as an assignment. And mm -hmm. it's partly to get them to begin to do this kind of time audit, because as you begin to observe what you're doing, you suddenly go, oh, I can't. So a lot of people will say, well, I'm going to monitor my cell phone use for the week. And then they'll discover how much time that they are spending stopping themselves from doing other things in order to check the notifications on their cell phone. And when they finally realize how much time that's taking up, then they begin thinking, oh, maybe I can shut the phone off for a couple of hours or, or stick it in a drawer somewhere or, or just keep it otherwise away from me so that I don't get sucked out of something that was probably more important in order to find out what my arch enemy said on Twitter last, last mm -hmm. week. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about, you know, consciously choosing habits and then adopting them, right? So, you know, we all brush our teeth and if we had to do a cost benefit analysis every single evening about, you know, whether we should brush our teeth or not, we probably wouldn't brush our teeth as often. And it would certainly suck up a lot of our mental energy. So we, we kind of make that decision once we say, okay, does it make sense to brush our teeth or not? Yes. Okay. Let's just do it. But there are plenty of other situations. You know, I've, I've had friends and family where, you know, you, you try to get them to put the dishes away after dinner or whatever. And, and if you have to decide that every single day, then every day it looks like a pain in the butt. But if you kind of make it automatic, then you just decide once and, and whatever. You talked about learning a new instrument and, you know, you also use examples of, you know, whatever weight loss or smoking cessation. But if you're trying to adopt a new habit as opposed to stopping some old habit, how do you kind of lay this down? I mean, it seems, you know, it, you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, what are the saxophone? But then the next day you're like, I got all this other stuff to do. I'll, I'll, I'll skip it. Right. How do you, how do you lay down that new habit? Yeah. So in order to lay down a new habit, the first thing you need to know is where do habits come from? And habits have a very simple formula. And the, the simple formula is first, as I said, habits are memories that relate a situation. It's both the external world and what's happening in your head to an action. And so the first thing you need to know is you need to have a, what's technically is called a consistent mapping between the world and the behavior. And by a consistent mapping, what, what that means is that whenever you're in that situation, you're going to perform that action. So they exist in the world, you know, so, so for example, your, the light switches in your home don't move because they're always in the same place. You can eventually learn without having to think about it, where to move your hand in order to get the light to go on in a room in the house. And we also build them into user interfaces a lot. So your car is set up so that the accelerator and the brake are always in the same relative location because, because if they were mixed and matched, so there was an inconsistent mapping, then you'd, you'd have to look every time, like where, what, what do I press now? And then you'd hit the car in front of you. So we build those into user interfaces. You need to have that consistent mapping. So one of the things that that means is when you're trying to build a habit, you want to find islands of consistency. And, and so for example, when I was learning to play the saxophone, so now I had to, I had to add that into my life. One of the things I did was to pick a consistent time of day to practice. So at that time I was parenting a, a young child. And so I would put him down for bed and then go pra practice my saxophone. And so it became part of a consistent routine. If I played sometimes in the morning and sometimes at lunchtime and sometimes later, then it would have been hard to develop a habit because it would have been an inconsistent relationship between what I'm doing at any given moment and that behavior. So you want to build in that consistency. And then the other part to the formula for habits is repetition. You have to just do it 
several times and, and enough times that you have enough memories to, so that you are, you can remember what you're supposed to do. That of course, inevitably leads to the question, how many times do you need to do it? And then if you read popular accounts of habit formation, they say it's 21 or 60 or 80. And, you know, again, the answer is sort of, it depends, but for practical purposes, if you do something consistently 20 or 30 times, chances are you will get to the point where you are starting to build a habit around it, but it's going to take longer if you have some competing habits already in the system. And I just want to add one more thing to that, which is if you think about that concept of brushing your teeth, for example, one of the reasons it's easier to get people to be consistent about brushing their teeth than it is about, you know, doing the dishes, for example, is that we build furniture around brushing your teeth. I mean, you know, you look at the way bathrooms are designed and we've actually got a holder for your toothbrush that's out there. And so we have structured that whole environment to make everything available for you to see in your world so that you don't forget to do it. Anything in which the world's a little bit more dynamic, you know, makes it more difficult. So for example, one of the things we often do at home, if you're living with other people, whether it's a, you know, a spouse or partner or kids or is you try to be fair in the allocation of chores. So you do things like say, well, we're each going to clean up after dinner one day a week. And that seemed it's fair at one level, but it actually makes it harder from a habit standpoint, because it means that you've now got to remember, oh, this is the fourth day. So it's my turn to do the, the dishes again, as opposed to, you know, another way to do it would be to say, well, here are four chores that need to get done. And, you know, and, and we're just going to allocate them each to, to somebody. So, you know, dinner's over and each of you has to do this thing. And right. that actually makes it easier to create the habit because now everybody's got a consistent thing that they need to do and you don't have to reevaluate it every time. Well, when you talked about the difference between kind of brushing your teeth and flossing your teeth and, you know, I like that example because yeah, you're right. I mean, the floss is kind of in the cabinet and you know, whatever. And it made me think, why haven't you designed and patented a floss dispenser that people could, you know, a nice, uh, attractive looking floss dispenser that people would be proud to leave on their, on their sink. This is, Hey, you're in marketing. Yeah. I was hoping that I just thrown that out there for somebody to pick up. You know, my graduate by one of my graduate advisors, Doug Bedino, always used to say to me, ideas are cheap, right? It's, it's the execution. So there is an idea that's out there. If somebody wants it, just, you know, thank me. But I, yeah, you can't, you can't do it. It's a lot of work. I, I was the executive director of a, of a think tank for three years that focuses a lot on, on entrepreneurship. Being an entrepreneur is that's hard, man. You know, designing the product that might even be easy too, but then, you know, trying to, trying to get somebody to pick it up and market it. That's, that's a lot of work. But you also highlight the importance of the connection between kind of motivation and attention. And, and I found this story interesting, right? Because, you know, when you think about things, whatever, like washing the dishes or, or whatever. The people who do it also notice it, right? And the people who don't do it don't notice it, right? And so, you know, what you see in the environment around you is influenced by your motivations, right? So, you know, if you're someone who's really interested in, in like sweets, you know, you see sweets everywhere, you know, and if you're say a, a drug addict, you know, you're going to notice whenever anybody is holding that particular drug, right? In a way that would be invisible to, to the folks that, that aren't addicted to the drug. Do you have to kind of instill the motivation in yourself in order to stimulate the awareness, or do you kind of start with, do you have to cultivate the awareness in order to fuel the motivation? Like being aware, oh my God, there's dirty dishes, there's laundry, all this kind of stuff. 
maybe I should do something about it. Or do you have to start by saying, hey, I, I really want to be the kind of person who has, you know, an orderly environment. And oh, what do you know? It's not orderly, right? How do, how do those things relate? Yeah, I mean, at, you know, at first it can go either way. And some of it depends on how attractive that particular thing is to you just independently of the action, right? So, you know, new cars, for example, are really interesting to some people and not to others. But if you're the kind of person who's really interested in a new car, then you'll notice it. But we've all had the experience of going shopping for a car and suddenly noticing everybody else on the road driving the same car. You know, where you may never have seen it anywhere before. Suddenly you're thinking I might buy that car and suddenly it's everywhere because, because you're, you, you know, now you've got this motivation. So you can do this either way. If you're the kind of person who just finds a particular thing really attractive, you're going to see it there, but you can bootstrap your way into it by engaging that as a goal in a more top-down way. So if you're not the sort of person who's kept an orderly house, you may never have noticed all this junk around. And then somebody says to you, you've really got to get a grip here and, and clean the house. Uh, so you do it. You say, okay, I'm going to just set the agenda. I'm going to do it. But if you do it and you start doing it consistently, suddenly you start noticing, oh, there's a sock on the floor or, or whatever it is. And this is actually, interestingly, right, this is the source of many arguments among you know, people living together. You know, so if you've got one partner who is more attuned to keeping the house clean than another, right? One of them says, why didn't you pick up that sock on the floor? And the other one says, oh, I, I'm sorry, I just didn't see it. And they think that excuses it. And the reason that that actually causes an argument after that is because not seeing it turns out to be a reflection of it's just not in my motivation to keep the house clean because if it were, I would have seen it. So that's why the argument doesn't end with, so the one person, the person who's not particularly motivated to clean thinks, well, I didn't see it. That should be explanation enough for why I didn't pick it up. But really what the other person is saying is, why weren't you the sort of person who was motivated enough to keep the house clean that you would have seen that sock before I had to say something? Yeah, I think economists, they tend to separate these things out. They think, well, there's, you know, the, I mean, even lawyers, right? There's the facts and then there's the, the, the law, right? And, you know, as an economist, you're like, okay, there's, you know, there's empirical reality and then there's preferences. And so we would think, well, okay, you value cleanliness and this other person doesn't value cleanliness, but there shouldn't be any disagreement about the state of, you know, cleanliness right. <laughs> in, in the environment. But if the difference in, in preferences alters you know, how you view the world, then you're having these empirical debates, which yeah. in reality you shouldn't be having. Like, I mean, the, right. there either is or but there you, isn't a sock on the floor, right? Yeah. Right. And, and at some level, once it's pointed out to you, you're like, oh yeah, I guess there is a sock on the floor. So eventually you can come to that agreement, but because you are in these different motivational states, you are in, a, in almost a literal sense, living in somewhat different worlds up to that point. And this is true in all kinds of ways, right? There's, there's also these fascinating interplays between perception and skill. I, I, I read this wonderful article years ago about the Austin parkour club, you know, yeah. parkour, these crazy people who climb up walls and mm -hmm. stuff like that. One of the members of the club pointed out in the article, which I, I thought was, is a deeply true thing. They were saying, look, having learned parkour, 
the world looks different to them. The world is now full of all sorts of handholds and footholds and things like that that were literally never there before yeah. because they didn't have the skill to make use of those. And so the more you learn about stuff, the more different the world sounds. I mean, it's funny. I have a, I used to have a big collection of jazz CDs in my office. It was actually one of the things that motivated me to learn to play the saxophone, which is was that I loved jazz and I loved mm -hmm. the, the saxophone in particular. I loved the sound of the saxophone. So I thought, well, I'll just learn to play. And having learned to play the saxophone and learned to play jazz on the saxophone, it ruined my ability to, <laughs> to listen to jazz while I was working because all of a sudden yeah. I was like listening to chord changes and hearing what the bass player did and thinking, oh, you know, here's, an, here's something you could have done there. And I, I just started hearing things in the music I wasn't hearing before, but it started attracting more of my attention. Mm -hmm. So I actually had to stop listening to it. Yeah. That's why I can't, you know, do yoga when there's classical music playing. Cause it's, yeah. it's like, you know, they got to play that lightweight, you know, yeah. new age stuff if I want to do yoga. Cause if it's classical, I can't, my brain is engaged and I've, I've, I miss yeah. all the moves and stuff. Right. 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 But I want to get back to a central theme in the book, Smart Change, which is, you know, you talk about the kind of go system and, and the stop system, right? And, and obviously this is a, a very simplified <laughs> view of things, but, but what I like about it is that you, you emphasize that stopping is harder in a way, right? And when we talk about things like, you know, losing weight or stopping smoking, and we talk in terms of, of, of willpower and say, it's just about like, hey, just, just don't do it. But you're arguing that Maybe you, you need to kind of replace desire with, with, with a different desire. But the problem there is that, you know, the desire to not be a smoker is in many ways less immediately evident than the desire to, you know, have a cigarette, right? So how do you take that long-term goal, which you're pursuing and, and convert it into a short-term goal? I mean, this is something that in, in marketing, right, in, in business, this is always a, a big issue. If you're trying to get people to conserve energy, that, you know, doesn't translate into, hey, should I, you know, use the hairdryer or not, right? And I always think in terms of diet, you mentioned that you are, are a plant-based eater. And it seems like for me, it, uh, the idea that I'm going to, I'm not going to eat ice cream. I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to eat this. That seems less attractive than saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to eat a lot of, I'm going to eat a lot of peas and I'm going to eat a lot of carrots and I'm going to eat a lot of, you know, celery, right? Like, in other words, tell me what you're going to eat as opposed to telling me what, you, what you're not going to eat. Yeah. So let's break this down, right? So, so first of all, all that motivational stuff we talked at the beginning about, about developing these habits, you know, basically your motivational system engages some goals. It, it causes you to notice things that are related to those goals. It drives you to act. It gives you energy to act. All of that is that go system. And, and the go system works really, really well, partly because it's got all these brain mechanisms that, as I mentioned, are buried deep inside the brain yeah. and they're phylogenetically really old. You don't get a reward signal for not doing something, right? You only get a reward signal for doing something, right? For doing, right. And, and that's why, right. And that's why habits are, you, you create habits when you do stuff. And then there is a mechanism that kicks in when you engage a goal that you don't really want to perform. You know, and a simple example I use is like the first time I ever got a car that had, you know, a, a fob that just connected to the car without having to put a key into the steering column and turn it still for two weeks, I walked up to my car and pulled the key out of my pocket and joyfully jammed it into a steering column that had no receptacle for it. But there was a period after that where I'd start to pull the key out of my pocket and then stop myself. 
before I finally just got to the point where I didn't pull the key out at all. And it was that middle period where I was engaging this secondary set of mechanisms, this inhibitory system in which that ghost system was saying, pull your key out of your pocket. And this other system, this stop system was going, oh, no, you don't. And, you know, it, it works okay in the short term. The problem is it's effortful. You've got to remember to do it. You've got to think about it. It's the reason why when you're driving home from work and you're supposed to pick up milk or something on the way home that you forget until you're in your driveway. Because what happens is you've got this whole set of habits that are running off gleefully with your go system one after another until you get into your driveway. And what you're supposed to do is to stop yourself somewhere in the middle of that to remember you're supposed to pull into a store in order to buy milk. And if you get distracted, so you don't have the mental energy available at the moment when you're supposed to make that turn, you miss it until you get home. And then you're like, oh, I forgot the milk. So, you know, it's effortful to engage. It can be disrupted by stress, it can be disrupted by, by chemistry, right? This is, you know, everyone knows somebody, we, none of us, nobody, none of your listeners have ever had this happen, but we all know people who've like had too much to drink and then done something they later regretted. That's, you know, these people can cause failures of that stop system in all kinds of ways. So you can't ride the brakes. You have to find an alternative behavior you're going to engage. You basically have to reprogram that go system to create a set of actions you're going to perform rather than things you're going to avoid doing. And that's why some of the hardest habits for us to change are the ones that involve not doing something or doing less of something. And it could be a physiological thing like eating or smoking, but it could be like, I want to check my email less often, or I want to check my cell phone less often. That's harder because it's not really an action. And so part of what you need to do is either to create actions to replace it or try to reassociate the feeling that came along with, I want to do this other thing with a different action. So for example, so you mentioned, I do this podcast called Two Guys on Your Head. And the other guy in this is a guy named Bob Duke, who's a music professor and psychologist at AUT. And, you know, we talk about just seven and a half minutes of random things about psychology you might wonder about. And one of the things that he talks about related to this is when a teacher, a music teacher is teaching students how to practice. One of the things that'll happen is a kid will practice for five minutes and then say, I'm, this is hard. I'm going to stop. And. What they suggest teaching to kids in that situation is when you get that feeling, I'm going to stop, have them set a timer for a couple of more minutes and then play a few more minutes or play one more song before you stop. So I'm going to stop, but I'm going to practice one more song and then I can stop. And what's nice about all of those routines is what they're teaching you is when you feel like I need to give up right now associate that with, I'm going to play one more thing. Because what'll happen is a lot of times you'll play that one more thing and it'll be interesting. And it'll be sort of fun. So then you'll play another one and you'll keep going. And suddenly you'll actually finish the full practice time instead of quitting. What you're doing is taking that feeling and associating it with a different action, not I'm going to quit, but rather I'm going to quit after I do this. And so each of these involves adding a behavior into the routine. So why can't we repurpose the reward system so that every time we kind of prevail or triumph over a temptation, we, we view that as, as an accomplishment, right? I mean, do people do that sometimes? And then they can, you know, say, I just accomplished something, you know, I felt like eating ice cream and, and I didn't, you know, like that would, why, why do we have to kind of 
divert attention away from from that? I think there's sort of a couple of separate things going on. I mean, first of all, I you know this issue of the reward system is a little bit of a misnomer, right? So the thing that we that often gets called the reward system in books on habits isn't really about reward. If you look at the at all the old studies of because a lot of this this notion of there being a reward system came from studies on rats and things like that, learning behaviors, and you'd record from electrodes in the brain, and you'd find that there were these cells that release the, the, the neurotransmitter dopamine that would release dopamine when a reward was given. And so then people went, oh, dopamine, that's the chemical that must make you feel good when you got a reward. Now, it really what's going on is that was the cells that became active in the presence of something unexpected. And the unexpected thing was I, I performed this action and they gave me a reward. And so then your, your brain went, learn that. Right. That was great. Learn that. Because if you look at what happens in rats after the reward becomes completely predictable, you don't get the reward signal anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that the chocolate milk or whatever you were given to the rat wasn't rewarding anymore. It means it was predictable. Now, the rat knew in this environment, I do this thing, I get this reward. I know what's going to happen. I don't need to learn anything anymore. Right. It's not, you know, dopamine isn't the pleasurable thing. I mean, it's endorphins. There's a great bit of work now on these endogenous cannabinoids, right? Where, you know, if you ask where the runner's high comes from, everyone said, oh, it's endorphins. No, endorphins dull the pain of running. And I, I'm a runner, I get it. You know, you run and stuff hurts, but then it doesn't hurt after a while. Not because you got used to it, but because your brain releases pain, pain desensitizing chemicals, endorphins that stop it from hurting. That doesn't give you a high. The thing that gives you a high is some people who run, apparently not me, actually get get a release of the kinds of neurotransmitters that cannabis also binds to, and that gives you actually a bit of a high. Because if you had no receptors in your brain that could make you feel high, then cannabis wouldn't work, right? I mean, you got to ask yourself, why are these receptors in there if there aren't other chemicals that your brain uses that would bind to those? So, I guess you also get the munchies after running too, right? Well, you die. Uh, yeah, that I do get. That I do get. So anyhow, you know, this dopamine signal isn't inherently rewarding. It's a signal to the brain that, that something unexpected mm -hmm. just happened. Learn that so that you can do this again in the future. And it was, so it's a positive thing that happened that was unexpected. And so, you know, I, I think we, you know, we need to understand that, that when we're in these habit learning situations, it's the unexpectedness that leads mm. to that particular thing. Now to get back to the specific question that led to this. So why then don't you just feel a reward for not doing something successfully? And the answer is because nothing unexpected happens when you don't do something. Right? Then, I didn't do, I didn't do something and nothing happened. Yeah. I'm constantly not doing things. And remember, these are really low level brain mechanisms that are at work. This is not conceptually speaking. I did this thing. And now conceptually, I understand what the outcome was. This is at the level of, you know, stimulus response. This was the state of the external and internal world. And then this was the outcome in my external and internal world. And I'm learning the relationship between those. And so, you know, all of the conceptual knowledge I have that pats myself on the back by saying, I, I successfully didn't eat ice cream today doesn't affect all those low level mechanisms. You know, the next night comes along and I still want ice cream. 
So what I need to do instead is, is that reassociation so that those low level mechanisms kick in. So now I know I wanted to eat ice cream. You know what? I'm going to work on a puzzle instead because it is really awkward to eat stuff and do a puzzle at the same time. And then I'll just learn at that moment, at that time of day, when I'm feeling like I ought to sit down and have ice cream, I'm going to work on my puzzle or read my book or do this other thing. Well, then if it's not, uh, look, I mean, habits are inherently predictable. And, and so there's nothing unexpected. So if you've got the habit of playing the saxophone every day, or you've got a habit of putting the dishes in the dishwasher or anything else like that, where does the satisfaction come from? When I put the dish in the dishwasher and press that button and shut it, like, I feel great. It's like, ah, I just yeah. did something, you know, you make your bed. You're yeah. like, oh, I just made my bed. Like what, what if that's, it's certainly yeah, but, not unexpected. So what, if it's not dopamine, like, what are you getting when you, when you feel that? Those are all those other little pleasure chemicals that we have. I think that's the thing is, is mm -hmm. we keep thinking that somehow it's that, that, that learning signal mm -hmm. that was also the signal that made it feel good. And it's not that. It's, you know, after a while, I can do this thing by habit. I don't need to learn anything anymore, but I still could enjoy it. Yeah. Right. So I can still sit there and play the saxophone and feel awfully good about that. But that's not because I got some dopamine rush. It's because I got a rush of other chemicals that were a, that were part of that desirable response. The dopamine system was the thing that was driving attention and learning. We called the reward signal because years ago when we were studying rats, the thing about trying to measure stuff from people's brains is you all you can do is relate something that happened in the brain to something else you knew was happening in the world. And so this signal was correlated with giving the rat the reward. So we called it the reward signal, and then we overinterpreted that. And I think that people who, it's the danger in part with people writing books about psychology if they're not also well-versed in the literature because you, you see the term reward signal and you go, oh, it's all about reward. And you bring your lay beliefs about what reward is. And then you write a whole book about the importance of reward. And it's not really about reward like that. Now, you also talk about the importance of arousal. And, you know, in my workplace class, I talk a lot about the Yerkes dodson law, right? And there's this kind of optimal amount of, of arousal for, for motivation. But it seems like a lot of people will, will skip over that, right? They'll go from yeah. being Un unmotivated. And then if someone says, Hey, you know, you got to do this or whatever, then they immediately jump to the, the anxiety stage. And, and, right. and those things, neither one of them is conducive to actually goal fulfillment. So, so yeah. I mean, and, and I think you point out that this, we shouldn't view this as, as an inherent deficiency, but rather think of it as a, a muscle that just needs, you know, some, some exercise. So how does one exercise one's arousal system and kind of, you know, activate it, intentionally in order to, you know, achieve goals. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing. I mean, arousal is the energy, is the energy we put behind our goals. And as you point out, I love that. I love that, that the Yerkes Dodson curve still works because this is from a paper from 1907, right? <laughs> and there's so little in the field of cognitive science that you can and go. They were not, they were not measuring, you know, cortisol levels right. or anything back in those days. Right. But the idea that we could actually take an observation from over, you know, hundred Oh, 115 years ago, and it still still holds. That that's wonderful, and it is this idea that when you have very low levels of energy arousal, you don't get anything done, and then there's a sweet spot, right? The more arousal you get after that, the more likely you are to get something done, and then you hit a sweet spot where you work at peak efficiency. After which you go over the edge of the curve, and when you have more and more arousal, you you just descend into panic, right? You're you've got so much energy, you can't stay focused, you can't get anything done, 
and you, you definitely have to practice that. Particularly, you know, think about what happens when you take on a new job, for example. You know, you want to impress everybody at your new job and you're worried about being judged by other people. And so you've got, you've got a pretty high level of arousal to begin with, but you don't even know what to do with it yet because you're new at the job. And then somebody says, go do this. And now having given you the order and knowing you're being watched and every, everything else, you're like already over the edge of the curve. And so then that, you know, that first week you find yourself not doing anything well, not only because you're not a hundred percent sure how to do things in that environment, but also you're just completely hyper aroused. And I think when you find yourself going over the edge of that curve too often, you have to find ways to calm yourself down. And physiologically you can do that, right? You can, you can actually a little deep breathing will actually dissipate some of that energy or going out for a walk, something like that. And you have to learn, you have to learn to, to manage that arousal level. And you also have to learn who you are naturally. So there are people who are naturally really high arousal people who just, you tell them to do something and they just go do it. Even if the deadline is like six months from now, they're like, okay, done. Right. And then there are other people where, as I like to say, you have to detonate a small thermonuclear device under their desk before they even notice that there's something that needs to be done. And those folks need to learn to create a more of a sense of urgency earlier. And when you get those people together in the workplace, it's oil and water. Cause the one of them is like, why aren't you doing anything? And the other one's like, dude, just, just relax. <laughs> right. Now you talked about protected values and, and this, this is, I think an area where psychology and, and philosophy come together, you know, very well. And, and it's kind of like importing almost a deontological view of things into your behavior. So the, probably the most famous example of this is Alcoholics Anonymous, right? You know, you don't even take a sip of, of alcohol. And, and I remember I had, had lunch with uh, George Ainsley, you know, probably 25 years ago. And he was talking about, say, you know, quitting smoking. And he said, you know, if this is a day by day decision, if every day you have to decide, hey, do I want to quit smoking, you know, today and, 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 you know, or should I do it tomorrow, right? Tomorrow always makes more sense just because one day of smoking isn't going to kill you. And so he said, you have to kind of convince yourself, even though it's completely irrational, you have to convince yourself that it's a one-time decision and that, you know, you're deciding for your whole life as opposed to deciding. And, and this is really about like habits, right? You're deciding, you know, am I going to be someone who is a toothbrusher or am I going to be the kind of person who, who's not a toothbrusher? And this can sometimes help to, you know, commit to certain things. But it can also be harmful. I think you point out that because then people think, well, okay, I already had a sip. I might as well drink the whole bottle, right? Uh, you call it the what the hell effect. So what's a good way to incorporate these protected values? I mean, I know a lot of people that are vegan and, and if, if they find out that they had, you know, gelatin, they lose it, you know? They lose, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's this idea of unprotected values is here's a value and I'm just not going to accept any trade-offs, right? It's, right. it's There's a bright line between proper behavior and improper behavior. And you cross that line and you've, you know, you're, you're on the wrong side of it. And what that does is to make the line really important. So you can go up to the line, you can look over the line, but you can't cross that line. And if you're struggling with something like alcohol or cigarettes or something like that, then one way to try to prevent yourself from doing the thing that is going to be really bad for you to do is to make the line between, between proper and improper behavior really bright. And so 
there is value to that. There is value in, in telling yourself to, to do that. The problem is, as you were alluding to, that there is this notion of, of there's, a, there's legitimately a paper in the literature called the what the hell effect. I did, that was not the stop system and the go system. I put the book, the what the hell effect is a thing. And the idea is that if the world is divided into black and white for you with a bright line in between them, as soon as you step across the line, you're over the line and every territory across the line is equally bad. And so if you're in for a penny, you may as well be in for a pound. And so that's a potential problem because now, you know, you can engage in not just a little bit of bad behavior, but a whole bunch of bad self-destructive behavior because now you're on the wrong side of the line. And, you know, there is also value in seeing the world in terms of the gradations of gray that, that, you know, yes, it's bad to be a smoker. And, and, you know, particularly early on in trying to quit, it's probably useful to say, I am an, I am a non-smoker and smoking, just any, any smoking is bad smoking. At some point though, you may also want to say, but in the event that I happen to smoke a cigarette, one cigarette is less bad than 30 so that you see the gradation. So still, I want to be the sort of person who doesn't smoke. But I certainly don't want to be the sort of person who, having smoked one cigarette, you know, and back up to two packs a day immediately. And so, and so I, you know, I, I, I think that, that you, you have to weigh the costs and benefits of those different ways of looking at things. You know, and, and honestly, right, I'll, I'll, give you an, I'll give you a legitimate example. You mentioned veganism for a second. There's a really interesting discussion that's going on right now among, on sort of vegan social media, which... Many of your listeners may not be attuned to, but Kentucky Fried Chicken just released a Beyond Chicken version of their product. It is vegan. It is cooked in the same oil as the other chickens, the chicken that, that's being served in the, in the restaurant. And there is a vigorous discussion going on about whether that means that the product is vegan or not. And you have some people who have drawn the bright line on this to say it's if it got anywhere in the vicinity of something that was a an animal product it's not vegan and there are other people who are saying taking a more utilitarian view which is to say that if part of your you know there are many reasons why people become plant-based for me it was it was largely about the way that i wanted to eat but for, for many people it's they go plant-based because of of wanting to minimize the number of animals that are that are used for food and so there are many vegans who are saying well if buying this product makes it more attractive for the company to continue making this product, which in the long run is likely to decrease the number of animals who are used for food, which helps to achieve a long-term goal, despite the fact that it may have come into contact with oil that was used for something else. So what's interesting is you get different ways of looking at this. And I think there's a case of being willing to see some of the gradations has helped some members of the community to think about this in ways that might have a bigger long-term impact on the long-term goal of reducing the number of animals used for food. Now, at the end of this book, you, you talk about helping others to change. Now, I think this book, I, I think a lot of writing in psychology now, we can, we can call it self-help. A lot of times when I talk to people and I say, hey, there's a self-help book in here, they get very defensive and they say, well, no, no, don't, don't, don't say that. But in fact, you know, if you're philosophically interested in how to live, you're going to read every book as informing you about that. But, you know, when you're motivated to change how you live, you seek out these instructions. But 
when you see people around you and you think maybe they, they should change how they live, loved ones in particular, it seems like loved ones are the most difficult to influence. I'm a professor and my students are always coming to me and saying, Hey, you know, give me some advice, but you know, family members never ask you for advice. And when you offer advice, they, they tell you to, you know, buzz off. Yeah. So how do you create a behavioral change in others? Do you have to be more subtle about it and maybe just kind of create an environment that makes it easier or, you know, less costly to engage in behavior that you believe is in, in their best interest? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think so. So as you point out, it is, it's hard. It's hard to get somebody else to change their behavior. As I, as I like to point out there, there's an old joke, right? How many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. Right. And uh, that it's deeply true, right? I mean, if it, you know, for somebody to really put in all the effort that's required to change behavior, there has to be some desire to do that. And that's actually been codified in, there is a stages of change that, in, that, that, that originated with cigarette smoking that, that basically says, yeah, there's, there are these, what they call pre-commitment stages of change in which you're thinking about it, but you're not really ready to do it yet. And it's only when you want to change that you actually start getting real movement towards it. So that's definitely a piece of it. So when you're trying to influence the behavior of other people, a lot of what you're trying to do is to play around the margins of that. I mean, you can try to create some arousal, some energy to try to change. So, so one of the ways you create a desire or an interest in changing is to try to create what I sometimes call a bridgeable gap. And the, the idea behind the bridgeable gap is the gap is a gap between where you are right now and where you might like to be. So if, if I were to say to you, hey, here's this thing you said you want to be able to do and you can't do it right now. And if I believe that I can convince you that that's because of a behavior you're engaging in. So, you know, you get to the top of the stairs and you're really winded. And I say, you know, if you stopped smoking, you know, you might not be so exhausted when you get to the top of that flight of stairs. I'm showing you a gap. Now, now the reason that I caught that the bridgeable gaps matter is the gaps create energy. They create a sense of arousal. But in the physics literature, what we know is that energy without direction is heat, which psychologically we could think of as frustration. But energy with direction is work. And that's an actual thing. Energy plus direction in, in physics is work. And so if I can give you a direction, if I can say to you, this gap could be bridged with this set of, of actions, then I, I might be able to help direct some of that, that arousal towards those actions. So I can try to help motivate you by pointing out some of these bridgeable gaps, but I will annoy you in the short term by doing that, right? I mean, so, so if, it's, if it's a close family member or something, you got to be a little careful about how often you want to annoy people. But then in addition to that, I do think that you can make use of some of these other elements. So you can, you can make desirable behaviors easier to perform than undesirable behaviors. So for example, if you're, if you're trying to influence somebody else not to eat that ice cream at night, stop buying the ice cream. It's really hard to eat an ice cream that isn't in the house. And so making an undesirable thing less available that can be really helpful. Setting a good example helps not by pointing it out, not say, Hey, see what I'm doing, but just by doing some things, right? So, you know, buying the Peloton, sticking it in a fairly visible place and using it often, right? Without saying it, without comment, just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm going to get, I'm getting on the Peloton now. I'm going to, I'm going to go. Then, you know, that example may help because, because there is this phenomenon of goal contagion, this, this idea that if I see somebody else doing something, it actually makes me somewhat more likely to want to go and do the same thing. 
And so I just setting that positive example can help. Those are things that you can do in a fairly low cost way that won't annoy the people around you, but may at least increase the likelihood that they're going to engage in behaviors that might be more desirable. You know, we didn't even get a chance to talk about your latest book, Bring Your Brain to Work. Can you tell us just briefly, you know, what were you trying to do with, with this book and what are some things that, that people can take away from that book? Yeah, I, you know, with Bring Your Brain to Work, the idea was that this same notion of cognitive science plays out in all sorts of ways. And, and it certainly plays out in the career cycle that we engage with, where there are things we can learn from cognitive science that might help us to get a job, to succeed at that job once we've gotten it, or, or even to think about the next job when we're looking to get it. And so I think one of the interesting elements of it, you know, that's relevant to a lot of people right now is, is a lot of us, you know, if you think about this concept of the great resignation that everyone's talking about, one of the things that people are doing is they're making a particular decision that, that in the book I characterize as move on, move up, or move out, right? So move on is, do I give up this career path altogether? Move up is, do I want to get promoted within my organization? Move out is, I'd like to get promoted, but not here. And there's a lot of decision work that needs to go into making that kind of choice. So for example, just quickly, right? One of the, one of the things that relates to this whole discussion we've been having today is this notion of values. In addition to uh, motivations, we have a set of values that are a combination of things that we've learned from people around us and things that we have just decided for ourselves through the reading we do and other exercises. And what we value over the course of our lives may change. And so there are times where, you know, early in our career, we might value recognition, achievement. We want people to notice us for being awesome. And then later in your life, you might think that actually wasn't so important. What I'd really like to do is help people. I might value what they call benevolence. And so you will see people who sometimes will, in fact, I tell a story in the book. I, I did a lot of, I had a lot of friends on social media, connections on social media who gave me their stories. You get stories of people, for example, who were early on had careers that were very focused on achievement. And then late in their lives, they decided, you know what, I, I really do want to help people. And they would quit some of these very high powered jobs, go work for a nonprofit and do things that comported more with the values that they held at that moment. And so actually understanding the collection of values that are out there and how the work that you're doing relates to those can sometimes be really helpful in making decisions about what the next phase of your career might look like. Yeah. And I think you have a whole course on organizational inertia. You could probably do a whole course on kind of career inertia because work is very much about habits. You know, people show up and they kind of do the same thing, rinse, wash, repeat every day. And I think the biggest fear that people have is that, you know, a new job environment is going to be one where they're, they're likely to fail, or at least they're going to have to, you know, figure things out. And there's a huge fixed cost associated with that. And, and people are, are afraid to incur that and it sort of slows down their, their career progression. Absolutely right. Yeah. And I've been very lucky. One of the nice things about working in universities is that there's a tremendous amount of flexibility to change your job frequently without actually having to change your employer. And, and so I've been, you know, I, I started my career doing the traditional academic thing of, you know, teaching my classes and writing papers that got read by 30 of my closest colleagues. And then, you know, then started doing a little bit more outward facing work. And so I was able to not just write blogs and things like that, but consult for companies and, and give speeches and eventually start writing for broader audiences, but then was given an opportunity to, to, to run a master's program. And so I was actually able to develop a program that eventually also 
uh, led to an undergraduate program. We, we also have an undergraduate program in the human dimensions of organizations. So I will tell you, it's really weird to watch undergraduates walk across the stage, getting a degree in a thing you named because you, you think, okay, now I guess it's a thing because they've got a degree in it. And, you know, now doing, I worked at, I worked at this economic development think tank running that for a few years. And now I'm coordinating continuing professional education for the university. And, you know, that's making use of a lot more of these people skills to try to just influence the behavior of, you know, my colleagues. It's, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to do that, but it does, you're absolutely right. It requires you to say, you know what, there's a whole bunch of new skills I'm going to have to bring online in order to make this happen. And, you know, I'm going to muddle through it and there's a learning curve with everything. And, you know, and, and, and I will say practicing, trying new things in lower cost environments helps. I mean, so you mentioned earlier, I took up the saxophone in my mid thirties and Learning to play the saxophone, which was a, you know, a somewhat humiliating experience in the sense that, you know, no matter what age you start, you sound terrible at first, but realizing you can sound terrible and make those mistakes and the world doesn't end is, is, is also valuable, right? Because you realize actually you can make mistakes in all sorts of environments and the world doesn't end. You just do better the next time. And, and so practicing that even after you've become really proficient at one thing is helpful because it reminds you. I can actually take on a new thing and yes, I'll screw it up, but it's okay. I think that's one of the things that I find attractive about the university environment is I can, I can try out a new role. And, and of course, if, if it, if it doesn't pan out, I can always just kind of go back in, in most organizations. If you say, all right, I'm going to try an executive role and you don't like it, you can't just say, all right, I'm going to go back to being an individual contributor. It's like, all right, you, right. you gotta, you gotta leave the firm. Right. And, yeah. and now that you're an administrator, you know, if it turns out you don't like it, Right. You know, you're not going to have to leave UT. I mean, unless right. you make a lot of enemies, you can always just, That's you know, right. settle right back into your academic job. So maybe we should right. create work environments where people can kind of do more experimentation and I, try out new yeah, things. I think, think that'd be great. Well, Art, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great fun to talk to you and this book, Smart Change. Definitely everyone check it out, particularly if you're interested in developing new habits, which everyone should be interested in, but also bring your brain to work, brain briefs, habits of leadership and smart thinking. And don't forget the podcast, Two Guys on Your Head. Thanks, Art. Well, thanks so much. It was really great talking with you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.